0: Hello, it's episode fourteen of On Design. Hello, I am Stuart Chapman, and this is episode fourteen of the Big Pictures On Design podcast, the podcast which is on around and as you know by now near the topic of design. And in this episode it was my privilege to meet another Stuart, Stuart Wood, group leader at Heatherwick Studio and the longest serving member of their design and leadership team. Heatherwick Studio needs little introduction. Work like the London Routemaster Bus, the London 2012 Olympic Cauldron and the British Pavilion have helped cement both their and Britain's reputation for design on the world stage. One of the facets that makes Heatherwick Studio such a fascinating proposition is the breadth of their work. From huge-scale architecture projects like the 1000 Trees Development in Shanghai, through infrastructure, public spaces, transport, sculpture, right down to perfume packaging and a rotating and rocking chair, their work defies both the norm and easy categorization. I talked to Stuart about some of those projects, including one he's just finished, the Google Office in King's Cross, and one that was in construction while we spoke. Vessel, a towering staircase structure that forms a sculptural centerpiece to Hudson Yard, an 11-acre development on Manhattan's Upper West Side. We met at the busy Heatherwick studios, surrounded by models and materials of all kinds.
1: has my day been? Yeah. So my, my day has been pretty consistent with most of my days in that they're all different mm. and um, because I'm involved with so many different projects of so many different topics and each of them requiring a team which is specific to those projects, my, my days are uh, characterized by very intense, sequential conversations that are constantly changing. So it's a bit like um, speed dating in a way, <laughs> a sort of progressive speed dating where I go from a conversation talking about some office furniture to then directly speaking about uh, a hundred metre long icebreaker boat, right. To then talking about an airport, and then talking about uh, a very strange piece of public infrastructure in New York, and rinse and repeat. But as as the projects develop, those conversations develop. So it's in a way it's it's really pleasurable. I find it incredibly pleasurable because you're developing. Uh, those conversations and those ideas through extended, uh, almost like extended dinner parties, but mm-hmm. where you keep moving rooms mm-hmm. and coming back to the conversation. So
0: and this, this breadth is one of the things that uh, for me seems to define the studio, mm-hmm. um, the fact that your work isn't easily pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. So how, do,
1: uh, how does Heatherwick Studio define itself? Mm, that's, that's, that's the $64,000 question. So I think the first thing that I'm always um, very clear to point out is that we're not an architecture studio. We're a design studio. And that's very purposeful because it's always been our ambition uh, to not be limited to any one particular type of project mm. or location or uh, type of client. We're, we're interested in the world and how design in its most uh, authentic and powerful sense can make the world a better place Mm. which sounds pretty lofty and kind of like a sort of movie headline but I think we we take this pursuit very seriously in trying to build, design invent and build incredibly useful uh, desirable exciting experiential and hopefully beautiful things yeah and they can be small things, such as a very cheap plastic chair. So we designed a chair that is made of one piece, and it's called spun chair. And like the name suggests, you sit in it, and it's not a rocking chair. It's a sort of spinning chair. It's very, very cheap. It's sort of 150 euros or something like that. While simultaneously working on projects that cost Perhaps even a billion pounds, so very large architecture projects. But we try and treat them with the same philosophy, which is to bring usefulness, three dimensionality, excitement, experience, materiality to to the table, and make them, you know, really exciting, compelling things to be in and around. So, what do you think?
0: uh, What do you think then? The Heatherwick. Brand stands for. So, uh, if a client comes to you, if they want a piece of architecture commissioned, mm. if the client comes to you um, over Gary or Foster's or whomever, what do you think uh, they get from Heatherwick?
1: Mm. So, I suppose what they get from us is starts with the fact that we're not an architecture practice, so that they don't get a mode of behaviour or a type of conversation that might come from practices or studios that have come explicitly from architecture. Mm -hmm. So that's not to place any judgment on those people you mentioned. In fact, they're pretty amazing and we admire them hugely. It's just that we're not cut from that same mold. Mm -hmm. So the way in which we go about thinking about problems, solving problems, doesn't perhaps come from that architectural world of um, theory in some cases, or even practice in some cases. We... one of the things that characterizes the studio is our history of making and solving through making and prototyping and in some cases building our own projects because frankly it was the only way to get them built. There are an awful lot of models and uh, I just got the benefit of
0: a studio tour coming around here and there's a huge amount of models but there's also a huge amount of parts of models around so uh, it feels like making is very much a part of the process here.
1: It absolutely is and form and materiality and, and the Possibility of, of those things for us really comes through understanding uh, the physical nature of objects and mm-hmm. how they're built so the entire history of the studio as far as I'm concerned is, is, ap- is absolutely characterised by making things, solving things, building things finding things and being inspired by real objects. So that's not to say that we don't love computers and use computers, we've got tonnes of them You're, there's lots of them surrounding us and We've got the same kit as everyone else, but really investing in great making spaces and great makers. So we've got a really uh, talented group of people who don't just come from a model-making background. They come from prototyping, industry, you know, fabrication backgrounds. Mm. And, and so blurring the boundaries between making a model and making the real thing has always been pretty essential to us solving our projects. So for example, uh, with that, by a picture, a big glossy picture of one of our buses. There were many moments in that project where we built full-scale mock-ups of uh, the cab, the driver's cab, or the front of the bus, or even the seating areas on the inside to understand what our designs actually felt like to use. Mm. Now, typically, an architecture practice might not do that. They may, they might not, but we absolutely do that. And it's a way in which we We develop all of our projects.
0: What do you think that brings to the project in the end, that um, making things, making it more physical Mm. as soon as possible, as part of the process, what does that add to the final product?
1: I think it gives you a stronger command of of form. It gives you a a better uh, capability to solve real functional problems and challenges. Again, if you stay in the computer, the computer can do anything. It's unlimited. It's unlimited by gravity or bending a material 15 times in a circle, whereas for real, it won't do that. Mm. So it's, again, it's just been essential for us to leverage our ideas through the reality of making. But then we've always found that by making things, it unlocks so many more possibilities. Mm. And in fact, some of our biggest design leaps have been made in the workshop, not at the computer. So that's not to say other architects do or don't do that, but for us, I think it's absolutely characterful of who we are and what we do. Mm.
0: And having, you talked about the different design disciplines that you've got, so, um, and what does that bring to a project? So if you are working on, a, um, on an architectural project, mm. how, what does it bring to have jewelry designers and mm. fabrication makers and things like that mm. in, in your team?
1: Well, uh, I'm a good example of that. I'm not an architect, and Thomas Heatherwick isn't an architect, and yet most of the people we employ are architects, mm. and we all mix together. So my personal uh, growth through the studio has come through smaller projects all the way through to the point now where I'm working on perhaps some of the studio's largest architectural projects and leading them. So. We've always found, and I personally subscribe to this because I'm evidence of it, is that if, as long as you have the right constituent parts and skills in a project, the leadership of them and the, the kind of the inputs can be varied, mm. and so it creates a richer mix, it's In simple terms, if you only had friends that were all of the same type you'd have pretty (laughs) one-dimensional conversations. But you put a theatre designer or a jewellery designer or somebody from a fabrication background in an architectural discussion and they make really valid points. Mm. The same as if you put an architect in a jewellery design discussion, they'll make equally valid points. And the enjoyment of seeing those counter influences cross over is something that I think makes our projects tick. Mm. And it's Essential. It's not a nice to have. It's actually essential. Mm. And, um, and the kind of the breadth of the kind of projects that you do.
0: Uh, you know, we, in this room we have two different types of bridges. We've got um, a bus, and outside I can see the chair that you talked about, um, and we have the seat, uh, the seat pavilion as well. Mm. There's such varied projects, and they, um, they the final solution takes such different forms. But is there a common thread uh, that runs through all these such varied projects? Do you think?
1: Well. There is, in the sense that for a project to be meaningful to us it really has to have uh, or we somehow have to identify the problem that needs to be solved or the real real opportunity that's buried within. So I think we would never want to work on a project that simply was trying to make a more beautiful version of something that already exists. Mm. So with our bus, for example, there was an aesthetic challenge which was to our opinion contemporary buses looked very bad and were uncoordinated but the more real challenges were about making buses that were of greater capacity that could unload and load passengers more quickly could have greater fuel efficiency and be lighter weight and that started to define all sorts of parameters from which we could then explore so two staircases in the case of the bus that led to this very characteristic wrap of glass that follows follows the two staircases. Mm. So the challenge and the problem lead to the design, the sort of skeleton that then led to the experiential opportunity. Mm. And with all of our projects, we're just trying to hone in on what is that core problem or set of problems, and it isn't always clear. Mm. And our clients aren't always explicitly clear themselves. They might come to us with an expression of one need, and through intense conversation, which is actually where all of our projects start, they don't start withdrawing, they start through lots of communication and discussion. We may may come out with our client feeling that actually the challenge is much more substantial or different. Mm. And there are lots of examples I can think of across the history of the studio that started with very simple early discussions and led to something much more uh, substantial and it's not that we're coercing a client. It's just that through talking, uh, through talking about the topic or talking about the opportunity, it sometimes unlocks their own imagination, mm. and then we can respond to it. So it's in some ways a non-linear process, but based around some really clear mm. commonalities. And how do you do
0: that? Like, how, uh, what's your approach to truly understanding? The problem. So, I see long conversations and challenging conversations as, mm. as part of that. But, um, do you have an approach to immersing yourself in the challenge in the first place? Yes.
1: So, with with any of our projects, whether they be a building or a chair or a vehicle or a, or a bridge, for us it always starts with, of course, speaking with the client and asking them what they want or they think they need. But then looking at what the 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 field of competition uh, offers, as it were, or the history offers of that particular type of project and then looking at what the current condition is. So really just trying to analyse what has happened before, what what is in existence now, what are the things that we think are perhaps not as good as they could be, mm. what are the stereotypes, what are the cliches. Sort of cliche spotting is something I feel that we try and diagnose a lot because as you might imagine, there are of course lots of trends and fashions within any field of design. You know, contemporary buildings of a certain scale tend to have a sort of common look, uh, where they have certain approaches to how they're built or what they're built of. Mm. Whereas if you go back 50 years, obviously things look different. If you go back a hundred years, of course they look different. So for us it's really interesting to pan across history, technology, and fashions some fads and try and understand where could we find some uh, some real opportunity and not just do a nicer version of what everyone else is doing. Mm. So there's lots of analysis um, on many different levels, historical, material, uh, geographical, cultural, and also just looking at human behavior. Mm. Certainly with some of our larger projects Of course, human behavior plays a massive part of your consideration. Why do people do what they do? Why do they like to do one thing versus another thing? And especially in the public realm, uh, with some of our more public outdoor projects, it's really fascinating to think, to try and understand why do people love certain spaces Mm. and not love other types of spaces, and to sort of hone in on that. For something to be useful, for something to be meaningful and valuable and, and to actually be worth someone's time or memory or money, we think it should be specific, should be characterful, should absolutely be functional, but should be unlike everywhere else in the world. Mm. And how much it is, is unique is, of course, a question, but my point behind that is... We live, of course, in the most international times we've ever lived in. You can fly around the world either very cheaply or quite cost-effectively. And one can visit any developed or undeveloped city in the world and uh, compare and contrast. And so when you go to New York, or if you go to New York, and if you go to Stockholm, and if you go to Berlin, and you're surrounded by environments that feel pretty similar... Mm to us that feels like somewhat of a failure because why go there? So with all of our projects we're trying to understand what is the unique opportunity that this place, this client, this location offers and therefore to give something to that place that means you have to go there to experience Mm. it and therefore it's more memorable, characterful and useful to go there. Otherwise you kind of go somewhere and you've got it.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask you about a project where In a way, I guess you did the opposite of that, the Seed Pavilion, in which Mm. uh, you were briefed to capture something about the UK Mm. and take it to Shanghai, to Mm. the World Expo. Mm. Um, So what was the the approach for that?
1: So the, the, the British Pavilion project is probably one of the toughest projects I've ever worked on, because the core brief of represent this country and show everything that it means and is capable of is is was sort of so open-ended and nebulous it was <laughs> paralyzing and without wishing to sound mean about our client because our client was the British government i think even they would admit now that time has passed that they they really didn't know what they wanted or even to go uh, even how to go about talking about it because The very notion of an expo is this sort of bizarre cultural Disneyland where you have many countries of the world trying to show off what they stand for. And so for us, that project was so deeply analytical, it was fascinating because what we tried to do was understand the clichés of expos and try and understand the pitfalls that, to our mind, many countries... Or many expos fall into, the pitfalls that they fall into of trying to be hypercharged almost super stereotyped and sometimes it's wonderful and other times it's terrible and we just wanted to be very self-aware and, and to control our own destiny in that sense. So a big part of the exercise with that project was trying to imagine what the other countries would do mm. it was actually trying to imagine what the Dutch Pavilion or the Korean Pavilion or uh, the Japanese Pavilion might be, in order to not do that, and so for us the diagnosis became pretty clear very early on, which was we absolutely should not be red telephone boxes or David Beckham or Formula One or talking about umbrellas or top hats or waxworks of, wax of Sherlock Holmes, um, any of those things that you can see elsewhere that we we couldn't we shouldn't be that direct and explicit because actually it just would have no meaning Mm. and that we needed to have something that was much more uh, much less explicit much more sophisticated you might hope but then our other strategy was a very simple one which was our budget was by no means as advanced as some of the other western nations that we were competing against and yet our site was very large and so very early on a strategy came to our minds, which was, don't make a building that covers the whole site, because that will force the building to be cheap. Mm. And therefore, it will end up being underwhelming, and the experience will be lacking. So we took the strategy of making a very, very intense, compact gesture, and sitting it on a social landscape. And that was also informed by the fact that we knew that Expos, or the the Shanghai Expo, was very likely to be incredibly busy, millions Mm. of people, nowhere to sit down uh, other than go inside the pavilions. So we were sort of quite... We were very sort of politically strategic in a way of saying, right, we need to make a landscape where people could relax. We need to compress the gesture and make it very intense. And we shouldn't be clichéd and be David Beckham and and Waxworks. So that was almost the baseline strategy. Mm. And then from there, we developed... uh, We really developed a story around trying to address this this topic of better city, better life, which was the theme of the Expo, which really had pretensions towards speaking about sustainability and so on. And we felt that rather than preach to a country that frankly is is making bigger, uh, is addressing some of the challenges quicker than certainly Europe, it's got challenges to solve, but it's solving them very quickly, that we were hardly in a position to preach. So our narrative was more informed by... The origination of, of medicine, of materials, of commerce as coming from plant life. And that led to the story of the Millennium Seed Bank and being loaned 60,000 seeds. Mm. And the building really becoming what came to be known as the Seed Cathedral, but a real cathedral showing only one thing, which was 60,000 seeds, each of them individual and unique, but nothing else. No touchscreens no banners, no sound recordings, no interactive displays. It was actually quite a zen and calm experience. And that contrasting with the rest of the expo was extremely different, Mm. which was, was characterized by all of those things. So that project for me was almost a pure distillation of analysis and being opposite. Still needing a meaning, but being decidedly, confidently opposite. And it, it was very, very well received and, and got the first prize and had millions of visitors. So I, I think it was validated as a strategy.
0: And, um, and following on from that work, you, uh, the studio then later went on to do the cauldron for the London Olympics. And do you feel like the studio has come to become um, a, an icon or a representation of British design on the international stage?
1: I think there have, been, there have been many moments where we've been uh, characterised in the press as, as being uh, very British and, and sort of trying to build a narrative of British engineering or British, British innovation. And I think that's, that's something we've, um, we don't reject. I don't think it's something that we, sort of, we decidedly push. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that we're not... Patriotic or proud of our country. I just think it's, you know, we're, we're proud of what we do, and I think if that reflects well on this country, that's great, but I don't feel like we're on a, a sort of cultural mission to um, <laughs> sort of... It's, we're not cultural envoys uh, explicitly in that sense, but, yeah, some of those things are said about us, and it's okay.
0: And what do you think is the state of British design at the moment on the international stage? Is Design feels like it's a very strong export of mm. this country. Mm. Um, how do you see that being affected in, by Brexit and things like that? And, um, and what do you think the future of British design is?
1: So I suppose for me, British design has always been characterised by how multicultural and not British it is. Mm. And actually that's one of the things that makes it wonderful, which is the location is Britain. Or England but the constituent parts are from all around the world and that's something that I hold uh, very dearly and certainly around this area in King's Cross you don't have to go far to find many great architecture and design practices who have uh, you know who have originated in places other than this country so I suppose the risk of things like Brexit are making us uh, a less appealing place to to be based mm. and I think that that could have a, a negative impact in terms of finding quality overseas staff. It's of course going to make it harder for um, talented people from other countries to be based here. But deep down, I've maybe it's arrogance, but I've got this hope and this feeling that we'll still be able to retain our place as an accepting, you know, encouraging place because there's there is a history of this country. Hoiking itself up and moving itself forward through significant moments of design, whether mm-hmm. that be the Industrial Revolution or you know the, Vic- the Victorian era for which we have uh, a great deal to thank in terms of public spaces, great infrastructure and amazing moments of innovation. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think that irrespective of the political times, there's something deeper down that compels us to be forward-moving, mm-hmm. I hope. I might be terribly wrong, but... I share your um, hope. I, I, I like hope. to think I'm an optimistic
0: person, so I'm going to stay that way. Um, as well as maintaining a focus on, on some smaller projects, um, some of the projects which you're working on um, have become uh, political hot potatoes, or at least they're very much acutely in the public eye. Mm. Um, how do you, What are the challenges of working on a project? What does that bring when a project is... Not just you and a client trying to work a uh, find a design solution, but actually you you and that client trying to find a design solution mm-hmm. and also manage
1: how this is mm-hmm. seen
0: internationally and, and on the uh, public sphere.
1: So any large projects of architecture is is, is bigger than just us and a client. Um, the process of designing and and being allowed to des- to build a building is in is incredibly. Uh, uh, inter- interlinked with public opinion with sort of outside bodies planning organisations you're part of a bigger dialogue and that, that comes with the territory and it's absolutely right mm-hmm. um, it isn't just a sort of uh, a two way thing between us and a client who's got a site or got money so I think we're we're absolutely engaging and welcome of that debate because there are many examples of our projects that have become better for it. So for example the project very uh, close to uh, the studio in King's Cross as part of the large St Pancras development which has been going on for many years now. Next to central St Martin's there is a a new retail hub called the Coal Drops Yard which is a building that is in construction uh, by us right now. It's dealing with heritage buildings, very beautiful Victorian heritage buildings that were in disrepair and it Its intention was to become a shopping district, so part of our approach was to not shy away from interacting with the heritage buildings and was to almost positively augment them and give them a new compelling life. That strategy was developed hand in hand with planning consultation and in meeting the public and the planners pushing us to try harder. So. It comes with the territory of our projects. Um, projects like the Garden Bridge, they're, they're almost that, that uh, sphere of, of complexity taken up a few notches, and certainly that project was hugely uh, uh, written about. It was written about to a, lot, a very great degree. It was discussed in many different forums, not just design forums. And again, the Thames is a precious precious commodity in the history and the formation of London. It's not surprising that that project generated a lot of interest, mm. as it should. Um, obviously, its its ultimate fate we're very sad about, because it became part of, of bigger political discussions that ultimately are very far out of our hands. That That is an example of where the project ultimately got uh, enmeshed with those bigger challenges and and didn't survive and you know, such is life and we'll, we'll look elsewhere. Onwards and upwards. Yeah, onwards and upwards.
0: Um, and you talked about King's Cross um, mm. and I wanted to ask you about a project which I know you, um, that you led, mm. uh, which was uh, the Google offices mm. at King's Cross. And very interesting uh, dichotomy there between Google, mm. ultimately a, um, a company which uh, produces services which are intangible, mm. and, and Hedwig Studio, which, um, from an outside perspective at least, does feel very much um, about material and tangibility. Mm. Um, what, was, what was it like working with Google, and what did you aim to bring to that
1: project? So even though Google effectively don't build many things, they do these days. They've now started to build products and, and telephones and so on. They still need places to, to work, they, and they need very large places to work. So our relationship with Google started in, in California, in, in Mountain View, California, which is the, the home of Google, very close to Stanford, and where the majority of their employees are based. And due to their success, their incredible success, their voracious appetite for more office space is, is it almost insatiable. So. The challenge of working with them really came through this lovely, uh, this lovely basis of them needing lots of space, very quickly, but space that was very flexible. And unlike traditional office space, spaces that could be reconfigured or were perhaps not so limited in the way in which traditional office space is, where you can expand and contract and reconfigure teams, quite simply because their business model is incredibly agile. So our work in California and our work at King's Cross is in a way driven by exactly the same uh, desires. is to have voluminous, um, hugely capable, very flexible office space. In California, our projects are on very large, flat pieces of land and we're building very low, almost hangar-like spaces. In King's Cross, space is at a ridiculous premium and our site is very, very long and thin. It's 300 meters long. And the site is wedge-shaped, so it's slightly wider at the north than it is at the south. And trying to take all of those same ideas and deploy them in a completely different environment. And again, different to California, our site in King's Cross is very much in the middle of King's Cross. There's central St. Martins, there's lots of great office space, there's two huge train stations, there's millions of people. So whether Google liked it or not, they, they had to confront the idea of being very visible. And so our, our interest in that is trying to help them do that, is to actually find their, their, the physical voice of how they do what they do and the environment in which they do it, and try and find ways to manifest that in a way that help them explain themselves, to try and help give them a vehicle to interact with the public realm. And that's, the project is still in, in design development, and there are lots of things we're still working on. But at its core, we're trying to give them very, very flexible, very pragmatic office space, but in a vehicle that, that actually um, engages the public. And what was, it, um, what was it like to work with them
0: as a client? What was their, um, were they, did they have a particular idea in mind, or did, you, uh, did were they very open to hearing your answers or your solutions?
1: So the, the, the fundamental difference with working with uh, Google compared to perhaps um, traditional real estate uh, clients or, or clients from a building background is that Google don't really think of buildings in, in the same way. So their their background of technological development and fast, iterative problem-solving and um, really diagnosing for them what would be the best thing ever, 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 they took that wholesale and wanted to explore it in an architectural environment, which for us was incredibly refreshing. Not that they um, denied the existence of gravity or the the capabilities of steel, not sort of science fictional uh, uh, aspects, but really they're very, very profoundly interested in trying to develop buildings that were not limited by all of the usual limitations. So, for example, the ability to create more space quickly, or contract space quickly, and the shell of the building not limiting that. Which sounds kind of banal, but when you think about most buildings, they are they were designed for one thing. They get ended up. They end up being used for something else, and any change is pretty painful. So this really that exploration of flexibility is something that's driven the whole project.
0: And how did you achieve that? we you got any examples of um, clever design solutions to create that flexibility.
1: So in with our projects in California, they're In some ways, they're very simple. They're designed to be giant hangars, and the point behind that is that the contents of the buildings is um, disconnected directly from the shell of the building. So the office space is in, you know, California projects are almost like a, a collection of tables. Underneath the tables are meeting room spaces and amenity spaces, and then on top of those tables is the workspace. So one giant lateral space. But the shell of the building is is above and beyond that, like a giant hangar, And so that means that those tables, as it were, can flex, can change, can grow, can contract, can be filled in, can be opened up, and the building still keeps the rain out, keeps the wind out, keeps the noise out, and you're not interfering with the two. So our building in King's Cross delivers on the same premise but through a slightly different uh, design idea which again is about making a very large capable building with triple height spaces and then f- uh, hanging floor slabs uh, within that triple height space and the ability to add more floor plate onto those slabs or contract them. So different means but based around the same objective of flexibility.
0: Mm. I guess. Um when you're trying to come up with innovative solutions like that, um, having a site which is walking distance from here is mm-hmm. awfully convenient.
1: It is indeed. It's quite, I mean, I love travel. I love going to interesting places in the world. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't change that for anything, but it, it is also quite lovely to be able to walk up the road and, and to see two projects in action and uh, to get the immediate learnings from that mm. and to be directly connected to it without having to sit on an aeroplane. It, there's something that's very pleasant about that. As well as the fact that for us it feels really wonderful to be giving something back to the community that we're part of and really feeling responsible for that. Mm. Um, there's no hiding. If we do something that isn't the best it can be or if we don't try our hardest, it's on our doorstep. <laughs> A little bit like with our bus, I've actually it's the most pressured I've ever felt knowing that they would be everywhere on every street all day every day going past this studio going nearby my house my friends houses and that if we didn't do the best we could i would get a lot of complaints and have you sat on that
0: bus um in the context of being a normal traveler around london
1: absolutely i get the 73 bus from where i live in stoke newington uh, down to king's cross uh, many days of the week um coming here and going home so i'm a I'm a user of my own designs.
0: And are there any moments on that bus journey where you oh, wish we'd done that differently? Um,
1: I get asked that question a lot. Um, quite honestly, no. I think it for me, it, it does everything that we hoped it would do. Um, of course, there could be moments that could be slightly nicer or slightly this or slightly that, but I, I absolutely stand by the intent of how we laid it out the the emphasis on the staircases and of the the visual connectivity of looking out of the window as you go up and down the stairs to me feels really I wouldn't say revelatory but it feels like it really augments your experience of being on the bus Mm. and the lighting Um, as unsexy as it sounds the lighting was a, a real win for us of moving away from strip lights and and Really awful lighting, into things. Uh, you know, a mode of lighting that you, you absolutely expect in an interior context of spotlights and lower light levels. For me, the lighting is the thing that makes the vehicle feel more sophisticated, as well as all of the material choices and the shapes and so on. But um, that's quite a powerful effect, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, quite simply, we were given the opportunity and took the opportunity to design the vehicle as one thing rather than somebody doing the outside, somebody doing the inside, somebody changing the colour six months later and it being uncoordinated. It was uh, conceived of one thing, and, and I, I think we did a good job,
0: and I hope people enjoy it. And from um, an icon of London to um, a, a structure which may well become an icon of New York in times to come, a project which you're working on at the moment is Vessel uh, yes. in Hudson Yards in New York. Uh, so tell us a bit about that
1: so, so Vessel is probably the. even though all of our projects are unique this is probably the most unusual project I've ever worked on and in some ways if you'd have asked me to bet uh, over the years which of the projects you think will go forward and be built and which are the ones that you don't think would be built I absolutely wouldn't have put any money on this project <laughs> and that's not because I think it's, it's silly or irrelevant far from it, it's just because it's its premise is, is really quite extraordinary and doesn't fit into the normal mould of it's a building or it's a sculpture. And really that the project came from, again, the analysis of what we felt Hudson Yards needed. So the brief was very um, loose. Uh, you, it, it in some ways described um, uh, the need for an artwork and something very nice. Uh, and very attractive in the middle of Hudson Yards to make people go there. And in thinking about it, we absolutely felt that what Hudson Yards did not need wasn't a corporate artwork. Because certainly in the landscape of Manhattan and in New York, corporate um, uh, frontages to buildings are quite often characterized by very beautiful pieces of art, by very famous artists. And we're not artists, we're designers. So in zooming into the thinking, We felt that what Hudson Yards needed in amongst all of the spectacular, extremely vertical architecture, it was that it needed a heart. Not an emotional heart, but a real place, a moment, a focus. Because the the resultant leftover space, you could say, in between all of that architecture, was effectively a corridor. And we felt that the risk was that people would get to Hudson Yards and simply walk through it. Whereas, of course our client want people to stay. Mm. So the objective came through that process of analysing and saying, we need something that convenes people, holds them, gathers them, encourages them to socialise, to relax, but also not to block up the ground, and so that led to this very pragmatic resolution of something that was small at the bottom, grew in its capacity and was wider at the top, and was something that you could ascend and had places to sit. Now, I'm making it sound very, very simple and very, very obvious and logical, (laughs) but this was a really um, quite uh, steady, pragmatic problem-solving where we were looking at amphitheatres and uh, historical social spaces and meeting places and performance spaces. And the end resolution of that is 150 feet high by 150 feet wide at its top, uh, chalice-like shape. Called vessel, which is made of, up of many, many stairways and 86 landings, which are spaces to hang out, meet someone, uh, meditate, read a book, um, look out at New York, or look into the project and look at other people. And our hope is that uh, it will be used uh, in a very flexible way. Mm. So the client is already thinking about how performance, distributed performance could be. Um, made to happen there or you could have artworks or, or, or displays on each of the levels or even have yoga in the mornings or an insane kind of marathon race around it. It's, that would be an interesting marathon race. Yeah, it's actually surprisingly easy. It's surprisingly <laughs> easy to walk up. Um, take my word for it. You can, when you go, if you go there you can see. But as I say, what, what looks like quite a uh, eccentric, odd uh, thing for us came through a very, very logical sense of problem-solving of what that place needed. And the end result is highly characterful and you could say eccentric. And we think that also fits the bill, that it's something that people are drawn towards and want to use, mm-hmm. not just take a photograph of Instagram and go home. <laughs> so it's almost you, you have to go and use it to, uh, to be able to explain it. And therefore, we hope people will keep coming back. The way in which we conceive of projects is to not just discreetly problem-solve moments. So I need a front door, so let's make a very nice front door. I need some nice windows, I'll make a very nice window. Each of our projects is bound together by um, a philosophy that's specific to that project, uh, almost of a narrative that is part of that problem-solving. And so that means that each of our projects are like their own own mini-story that wraps around all of the needs and wants of that project, but we're always trying to give each project its own language. And the consequence of that is that very few of our projects look similar. So there's a model of a rolling bridge, very small rolling footbridge that we we, uh, built in Paddington in London many, many years ago. And when it's in bridge mode, it, it, um, by design, looks almost boring. And yet it's one extraordinary trick is the way in which it rolls up. And then when it does that, it's really quite shocking and surprising. So Mm -hmm. there's a contrast to it. The bus has its own language driven by the fact that it has two staircases. Um, Our British Pavilion literally grew from the idea of displaying 60,000 seeds and extruding that to become not only the windows of that building, but to be the structure on which the building stands. So each project has its own narrative, its own log- internal logic and its own story.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you, I know you're particularly interested in uh, innovation and technology's impact on cities. And mm. Um, your work at v- on vessel is uh, very much about the city and, and how to create a space which work um, or a structure which works for that city in particular. So, what do you think the future of the city is, given the um, with the gig economy rising and um, and things like that? What do you see as the future of the city?
1: I'll explain it this way. I think the future of the city will need to reconcile flexibility and change with specificity and character, and I think we're It's exciting times because those topics are really beginning to uh, become established in uh, perhaps the more conventional world where, as five or ten years ago, they certainly weren't. So in architecture there will always be the the sort of the the esoteric um, sort of experiments on the fringe, but I feel that now larger, more corporate, more uh, established real estate companies some of which we we work with are tuned in to this idea that the architecture of the future city needs to be able to change and change fast and um, to create possibilities and so we've been um, we've been very fortunate to do some work recently with uh, a company called sidewalk labs who are an offshoot of Google or in fact alphabet and really they're they're their task, they have tasks themselves with thinking very seriously about the future of the city at every technological level, not only architectural, but in terms of uh, urban infrastructure, how power, data, water, how, how the city is uh, uh, arranged and interconnected. And that's, that's something that has been really very fascinating for us, to try and connect the dots, not just between buildings as commodities, but also the land on which they sit, how that land is served, and then how you move around a city. And for example, there are you know, many, many people right at this point writing about the future possibilities of the urban landscape when driverless cars mm. uh, inhabit the streets. And the cars themselves, I think, are interesting there is a huge amount of technology and and, uh, invention going on there but I think for me and for us the the opportunities that it affords in the urban realm are the ultimate thing that it unlocks. So thinking about streets that aren't governed by uh, rectilinear roads or parking spaces um, uh, or uh, parking garages under or around every building and thinking about how the world around us might become more flexible and more um, create more opportunity if it isn't solely governed by cars that are driven by people abiding by the rules that they currently abide by. So it's at the moment it's still quite fanciful stuff but I mm-hmm. think for us we're very interested to be in the mix of that thinking to try and make sure that human sensibility, character, um, and, and sort of experience are at the heart of it, not just technical solving, mm-hmm. because it, f- there's no question in my mind that we're on the verge of a sort of a new era of thinking about building okay. and buildings, and so we want to be in the middle of that. What do you think that era will be defined by? How buildings are built, I think, is the, probably the, the most obvious way to unlock that and the traditional way of building buildings is of course that you you, you stack up pieces of a building and they're laboriously constructed um, on site and the ideas of prefabrication have been established for many decades taking that the spirit of that and driving it much much harder uh, uh, into uh, to allow buildings to be, be created not only quickly but to allow them to change quickly. Mm. So from buildings that can change from perhaps being a residential building to an office building, or a retail space, or uh, uh, a warehouse space, um, buildings that can radically change their use quickly and flexibly, and as much or as often as needed, I think it's quite a radical thing. And if you imagine the cities around us having that level of flexibility, suddenly the economics that govern and drive a city are, are expanded mm. and the rate of change can be expanded. And that, I don't think that means all buildings will be in that vein, but um, it's a radical departure to think of a building that perhaps in London was built in the Victorian era that's been knocked about and converted ten times and doesn't do any of the jobs well. Whereas if you suddenly face the blank sheet of paper set and, and can design a building that could be any of those things um, and could do it well, it seems like an entirely different proposition to me. And to what extent do you think um, that challenge of
0: creating flexible spaces, flexible buildings, the uh, is at a juxtaposition with uh, some of the work that the studio does, which is creating a beautiful and unique solution to a very particular mm. problem?
1: Well, I think... Um, beauty takes on many forms is, is, the, is the first thing I would say and I suppose there's nothing beautiful or uh, encouraging about uh, a city or a piece of streetscape that's in decline or is uh, unused and so some of the most exciting things that have happened in the world of retail, certainly in the last five years, is this whole world of pop-ups which has become almost like a cliche now but the idea of quick pop-up stores that test uh, interest and do things that you wouldn't do if you were paying a long-term rent. And maybe if people respond positively to it, they, they become permanent. That seems to me like um, one of the most encouraging um, movements of, in the world of creative retail and experience um, creation in the last five or ten years. So. I think that creates the potential for great beauty if you enable it and create spaces that aren't uh, fixed and encourage that flexibility Mm. rather than tolerate it. And so the idea of a sort of beautiful fixed sculpture can be a beautiful result. But I think we also believe that uh, a fast-paced... characterful, eccentric, fast-changing city is also incredibly beautiful and some of the most interesting places in the world market spaces, market halls, active streetscapes are much more beautiful than the sort of super swish um, Oxford streets of this world which are quite limited and quite fixed so I think there will always be a dialogue whenever you're interacting with the old and and as I said earlier we're we're dealing with examples of that at the moment with our, our project in King's Cross. I think for us, the, the, the key is to not be timid, is to not be um, sort of overly respectful of the past, is to actually be excited by the past and propel it forward into a new usefulness. And sometimes that means being very bold. It doesn't mean building the polite glass box and then doing a polite refurbishment. So I think we're, we're advocates of thoroughly engaging um, holistically with any existing buildings. But in terms of the role of design, I think what it can do is is create spaces that create opportunity, is to actually show opportunity for radical new ways of selling things, building things, experiencing things, meeting people, um, is to not trade on perhaps old values or the perceived wisdom of what makes great space. Mm. Because I think the, the parameters are changing and whether it be the digital economy or, or or political uh, times that are changing the expectation. I, certainly for a capital city like London, I feel that use of space is, and, and the philosophy of how spaces are used, is is actually a topic, which is 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I would have, if somebody had said that to me, I would have said, well, what do you mean? You just go to a park, you sit in a park, you go to a library, you get a book. But now, there are real discussions about how spaces can do many things, and how pop up, or short-term usage or temporary architecture can change usage It feels massively exciting. Let's talk a little bit about you. Um,
0: how did you find yourself um, in this world? How did you get here?
1: As I say, I'm not an architect. My background uh, has always been in design and inventing and creating and really I have my father to thank for that. So my father, who's now retired, but he had his own business and was um, a business based around antiques restoration and the crafts of French polishing. And he studied under his father and they worked together. And so I grew up with access to a workshop attached to our house. So I grew up um, having no barriers uh, or no uh, inhibitions towards making things, having access to tools or talking or thinking about how things are made or fixed. I tried a number of different things to explore that when I was at school and I did work experience at an architecture practice and didn't actually enjoy it. Um, I perceived it to be very bureaucratic and didn't understand why they didn't draw all day. It's a very very naive um, interpretation. And then I sort of got hooked into this world of industrial design and started to see and read about people like Philip Stark, who um, certainly in the 90s, and, and even so today, was for me a, a huge breath of fresh air, as someone who blurred the boundaries between design, artistry, sculpture. Architecture, infrastructure. The guy was designing toothbrushes, motorbikes, buildings, yachts, clothing, and that for me was absolutely thrilling and a complete aha moment. And so, long story short, through all sorts of um, different meetings along the way, I actually got to meet Thomas, Thomas Heatherwick sort of semi-socially and semi through a sort of a piece of project work and and was introduced to him and didn't really know who he was or what he did this is 16 years ago and he said oh I've got a workshop and a a studio space would you like to come and visit it and I thought anyone who's got a workshop sounds good to me (laughs) and came to meet him and was impressed and we got on very well and the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Quite, so quite a long partnership with, uh, with Thomas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what's he like to work with?
1: So Thomas is, um, Thomas is hilarious to work with. <laughs> He's, I think, one of the characteristics that defines him most and that I love dearly is a great sense of humour and a, a joyful irreverence it's not a serious place to work here. So that doesn't mean this isn't a serious pursuit, doesn't mean that we take our job lightly, but my my involvement with Thomas has always been based around sort of joyous humor, um, excitement, um, compelling each other on, looking at great things that we're influenced by, and really never feeling sorry for ourselves. This is an amazing thing to do and I'm very grateful for it. So. Never do I feel hard done by. This is a great job and it's amazing fun. And he's someone that has always instilled a sense of excitement um, and never is bureaucratic or um, slow to embrace newness. In fact, he's probably one of the most sort of driven people I've ever met, if not the most driven person I've ever met.
0: So that's it from Stuart. Thanks to him for finding time in his very busy schedule to talk about the incredible work that they're doing at the studio, and a special thanks to Alan Hewson for putting us in touch. Uh, for me, the work of Heatherwick Studio captures something that all design should aspire to. It emerges by examining the challenge from all angles, understanding what will make for a successful resolution, and not letting conventional thinking or the parameters of the norm constrain the solution. The results speak for themselves, and while beauty isn't always an explicit part of the brief. There's always beauty in the design solution and in structures that celebrate the art of making things. Having trained in architecture myself it was a personal highlight for me to speak to Stuart and a fitting point to end this run of OnDesign. I'm moving on to pastures new so this is likely to be it for OnDesign for now, at least in this form. So thank you for joining us on the journey and thanks to our MD John for supporting this initiative. Reese and I have thoroughly enjoyed making it and it's been a great personal pleasure for me to meet all the guests along the way. I hope you've enjoyed it too, and if so, please do share your favourite episodes with your colleagues. Uh, to keep tuned into news on the podcast, you can follow On Design Podcast on Twitter. So all that remains, as ever, is to thank Reese for patient production support, and until we meet again, bye for now.